have two um, Bible readings from the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel this morning. A couple of interesting passages as well. So first of all, from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 to 32. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show you the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, to the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. And then Ezekiel 37, the first ten verses, uh, the valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. 
So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Good morning. Um, uh, may I bring my greetings, brothers and sisters, from the saints in Gosnells, uh, from the church council there and from your church family there. Um, hello. <laughs> uh, grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's actually a real joy to be here. I, I know a lot of you and half of you I don't reckon I've ever seen before. Uh, it's probably been 10 or 15 years since I've actually been to a church service here, so it's a, it's a real joy to actually be amongst uh, other brothers and sisters. Um, can you turn with me to our text today? And we'll be reading from John chapter 2, verses 23, and we'll go to the end of John chapter 3, uh, verse 21. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a good teacher who is from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the Son of Man who came from heaven. The Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, just, I'll just pause there. This is something that I learnt when I was preparing for this sermon. In my Bible, the red, the red letters stop here and the black letters start. I never knew before I prepared for this sermon that the verses that followed were actually like a commentary from the author. 
And that was very helpful in me understanding. I, I thought Jesus just kept on talking. So that helped me when I was preparing this sermon, and, and hopefully it'll help you as, as we seek to understand this passage. So I'll get back to it. And, and I hope you know these words well, but please don't let their familiarity um, just pass over you. Feel, feel the gravity of what uh, the Apostle John has written here, and may it enter into our hearts. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world... But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So far our readings from the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father in heaven... Uh, We come to you as your people. We give you thanks that we are free to sit together under your word. We rejoice that we have the privilege of opening up the scriptures to hear from you. Father, we confess that if you didn't awaken us, if you didn't quicken us, if you didn't bring us to life and cause us to be born again, we would never love you. Lord, as I speak this morning and as we listen, We plead with you to send the Holy Spirit in power so that we might know you more and love you more. Because, Lord, without you, we are dead. Amen. Uh, This sermon that I'd love to share with you this morning is um, part of a sermon series that I'm preaching through at Gosnells uh, in the Gospel of John. And um, just in case you um, were unaware, uh, John is a book that's written with a very specific purpose. Uh, And that purpose is summed up in chapter 20, verses 31. It says there, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Every part of the Gospel of John works towards this purpose. There's no loose words, there's no passages that shouldn't really be there. Every part of it is designed so that his first century readers, and us today, would have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the first part of John 3, we encounter Jesus' conversation with the Jewish religious leader, Nicodemus. In this conversation, Jesus puts forward a truth that is very hard for Nicodemus to understand. And that truth is that it's God who saves us through His Son. This, the truly beautiful verses 16 to 21 that follow that are like a commentary by the author on this conversation. And it was designed to help the original readers understand the purpose of the dialogue. And it's to encourage faith, both in them and in us. Now, the truth deeply challenged Nicodemus... And by application, it's an invitation to us today to have faith in Jesus and to have great courage, comfort and expectancy for others to respond in that same faith. 
Now, the passage where Nicodemus and Jesus are talking, uh, it follows shortly after Jesus cleared the temple. Um, and verses 23 to 26 are again, um, of chapter 2, are again a commentary on how the people responded to Jesus' revelation of himself in Jerusalem. And John says they believed in his name, which is, I guess, a good thing. But if you read into it, you realise that they at least believed in the Jesus who could heal their sicknesses, uh, give them free food and solve their problems. That is, uh, the people then, and people in this world, are very happy to follow cosmic vending machine Jesus. I like this guy, he fixes my sicknesses, he gives me food, he solves my emotional problems, I'll follow that guy. But Jesus, this is not the faith that Jesus is looking for and it's not the faith that John is trying to engender in his readings, his readers. Jesus' response to the people's wider belief reveals the depths of his understanding and insight into their hearts and by application the insight that Jesus has into our hearts. Jesus knew all people. He knows us. He knows what's inside your heart he knew what was inside the hearts of the people in Jerusalem. He understands the fundamental driving desires that you can hide from others, but you can't hide from him. Jesus wasn't chasing a following. He wasn't looking for Facebook friends. Yes, Jesus and John's purpose in writing this gospel was that they would believe in him. But it wasn't a belief that was following a fad. It was an earth-shattering God-wrought faith that leads to eternal life. So as we move from the misunderstanding of the general population, John transitions to the conversation with Nicodemus because Nicodemus obviously saw something special in Jesus. Now, Nicodemus is introduced by, to us by John as a ruler of the Jews and later we find out that he is a teacher of teachers. He's a teacher of Israel he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was a senior Pharisee, he probably taught other people and he was very looked up to and respected. Now Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and John makes a point of telling us this and some people think that this was because he was trying to be a bit secret, he didn't want the other Pharisees to know that he was speaking to Jesus. But if you look at the way John uses the word night time in the rest of the Gospel, it's actually more likely a metaphor for spiritual darkness. That is, Nicodemus probably did come to see Jesus at night and maybe he was trying to hide from his friends. But the reason John tells us that is because he is telling us that Nicodemus is in spiritual darkness. Like the wider population, Nicodemus and supposedly the colleagues in the Sanhedrin had formed a view of Jesus based on the miracles that he had done. Jesus wasn't your average, like, flash-in-the-pan spiritual guru. Um, maybe think the first-century Jewish equivalent of an Instagram influencer. But in Nicodemus' words, God was with him. It's a big claim. God was with him. And to a lesser man, that would have been quite a compliment from a Jewish religious leader. However, Jesus, as he says, is so much more than a prophet. He was the Son of Man the Messiah, God himself. And Nicodemus hadn't seen that yet. Jesus cuts to the chase. And as per his response to the wider public's adoration, 
he sees straight into Nicodemus' heart as if his face was in front of him. Jesus' response stops the teacher of teachers in his tracks. Instead of flushing from the praise that Nicodemus had offered, Jesus lays down a deep truth and it's essentially the entry requirements into the kingdom. That he, John uses the word see, or Jesus uses the word see, and that meant to enter and experience into God's kingdom. The challenge that we might miss when we read this is that as an Israelite, and no less a member of the Sanhedrin, that was strictly obedient to the Scriptures and the wider body of Jewish teaching, Nicodemus would have been relatively confident that he was in the kingdom of God. And Jesus throws down the gauntlet and implies that he's not even in the kingdom of God. Nicodemus came to Jesus wanting to talk about the kingdom. But Jesus is seeking to open his eyes that maybe he isn't even in the kingdom. Now you can imagine Nicodemus' mind reeling at the challenge. And, the res- and his response betrays a sense of sarcasm. It's sort of along the lines... Uh, what are you talking about, Jesus? Are you suggesting that to be in the kingdom, I have to go into mummy's tummy and start all over again? And you can just imagine, he just, just doesn't, doesn't even get what Jesus is saying. Now, in response, Jesus doubles down. He repeats the need for the new birth and he provides more weight to the concept by characterising this new birth in terms of water and spirit. And then he further compares this to flesh, sorry, water and spirit, and he further compares this with flesh and spirit. Now, as Christians, we might be tempted to understand these references to water, to that's a baptism. Uh, but remember, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. This is before Pentecost. It's before the early church expands. It's before the sign of baptism has been given. So what is Jesus referring to here? Um, If you've ever worked in a corporate boardroom or in a large organisation, you would have heard management buzzwords, things like, oh, we'll park that, let's pivot this idea. And those (laughs) buzzwords, they trigger responses, right? In the same way, Jesus was dropping buzzwords for Old Testament Jewish people. He was saying things like word, water, spirit, flesh, heart and these words would have triggered a response a memory for Nicodemus and none is more clear than our readings today from Ezekiel 36 and 37 I'll I'll just read to you verses 25 to 27 I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all impurities and from your idols I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to follow my laws. Now, Nicodemus, he knew the Old Testament. He probably knew it off by heart. And he'd probably even taught on this passage in the synagogue. Jesus' phraseology, the words that he's using, the phrases that he's mentioning, the things he's saying, draw so heavily on this passage that it would be hard for Nicodemus to miss it. I think it's safe to say that he didn't miss it. I think he actually heard what Jesus was saying and knew what Jesus was referring to. But I think he may have disagreed with it in his heart. He heard it, 
but he didn't think that passage was talking about that. And I, I think this is the case because Jesus doesn't even let him respond. He just goes straight into it and he says, do not marvel at what I say when you must be born again. It's like Jesus is saying, Ezekiel said it. Moses said it. It's in the Psalms. Why don't you get it, Nicodemus? Why is it so hard for him to understand this? Why can't Nicodemus pick up what Jesus is putting down? And I think the answer lies in the Old Testament. And remember, this was the only thing that Nicodemus had. He didn't have the New Testament in front of him. We're coming back to Ezekiel 36, and there's a, there's a key part of the verse which starts it off. And, and hear these words. It says, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. And again in verse 32, It is not for your sake that I will act. Let that be known to you. It is God who does the cleansing. It is God who gives the Spirit. It is God who gives us a new heart. It is God who gives us a new spirit. It is He who recreates. It is He who regenerates. For His sake, for His name. All that the Israelites and ultimately you and me, bring to the table, is our brokenness. It is no accident that in the book of Ezekiel, the incredible vision of the Valley of Dry Bones follows directly after this. It is God who recreates. It is God who brings dead things to life. Dead bones can't make themselves come alive again. I don't think this was lost on Nicodemus. Babies can't choose to be born. It's not like the baby went and had a conversation with dad nine months before and suggested a course of action. Birth is something that happens to us without our choosing. Likewise, dead bones don't come to life on their own volition. And we cannot keep covenant with a God unless he intervenes and he recreates us and gives us a new heart and a new spirit. I think Nicodemus saw what Jesus was saying. I just don't think he liked it. Now Jesus reinforces this and he usually does this with a play on words. We don't really see it in our, we don't really speak Greek here, but um, the words wind and spirit, they're very similar. And again, that was a huge throwback to Ezekiel 37. We can't control the wind. And likewise, we can't control how the Spirit of God acts. We see the leaves moving and we feel the coldness, but we don't really know how that works. Especially in the Old Testament, they didn't know how it worked. We can't control it, today. In the same way, we can't control the Spirit, but we see the evidence of a new heart, which is a life of faith, that flows out in obedience. Now, Nicodemus, he lived and he breathed obedience to God's law. To be known as Israel's teacher, his devotion to God would have been exemplary. His obedience, as flawless as they come, and what follows from that is that entrance into God's kingdom, his citizenship, was achieved by heritage and obedience. In Nicodemus's mind, 
He was getting into the kingdom because he was an Israelite and he obeyed God's law. Jesus tears this down and he exposes the incredible, the inherent impossibility of pleasing God and living under his reign as the king based on human effort. Remember, leaves don't move themselves, babies don't choose to be born, dead men can't choose to live, and likewise, you can't please God without God doing something. And Nicodemus responds, how can this be? And Jesus turns around and says, how can it be that you, a teacher of Israel, do not understand this most basic principle, the entrance requirement? And Jesus goes on to establish his authority. How can Jesus say this? How can this teacher from a Galilean backwater tell the teacher of teachers what's going on? Jesus doesn't rely on the testimony of the crowd. He doesn't need Nicodemus' approval. He can say this because he has been with God. He speaks as someone who has come from heaven. And thus he speaks with authority. Now, can you imagine what Nicodemus is thinking right now? I imagine that like me, when I studied this text, he's working through the implications of this outrageous truth. If it is God who brings the new birth, if it is God who cleanses, if it is God who gives the new heart and God who changes us, where does that leave us? Nicodemus and us all want to know what we can do. What formula can we follow to get into the kingdom? And Jesus' final words speak to the right response to God's actions. And he does this with two references to the Old Testament. The first one is that he calls himself the Son of Man. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, the Son of Man basically was a self-reference to himself as God. And I think Nicodemus picked up on that. And the second is the bronze serpent from Numbers 21. Now, in the bronze serpent story, God was punishing Israel for their grumbling. And he did this by sending poisonous snakes among the Israelites. Moses' intervention led to God providing a cure in the form of a bronze snake that the people would look at. And when they looked at the snake, they would be healed. Now, the key here is not the bronze snake but it's faith that God will save. Jesus translates the snake image to himself, implying that he will be lifted up and whoever believes in him, has faith in him, will have eternal life. Although it wasn't clear to Nicodemus at the time, John realised, and we today realise, that like the snake was lifted up, Jesus was lifted up on the cross. Now, at this point, Jesus has shown Nicodemus what the right response is. It's faith in him. And our text breaks here, and we have the magnificent verses 16 to 21, which are essentially the commentary from the author John on this conversation. Now, in some ways, these five verses are essentially a sermon helping the reader to understand and interpret the conversation that just went down. Jesus had laid out the core of the gospel to Nicodemus and John expands and explains this from a post-resurrection, post-Pentecost position. The stark reality that was already in the Old Testament 
And then Jesus clarified it in his, his description of the new birth, and Paul expounds it later on in the rest of the New Testament, is that babies don't decide to get born, dead men can't choose to live, and spiritually dead people can't choose to live in right relationship with God. It is not possible to please God, to live in obedience with Him. And the reason that is the case is because every thought in our hearts are defiled. In all honesty, Nicodemus on the outside was a way better follower of God than any of you or I will ever be. His devotion will put us to shame. But even this pillar of virtue fell short because of the simple reality that dead men can't choose. Even our good deeds are tainted with pride and arrogance and a belief that God in some way owes us something. The joyful reality described in verse 16, the incredibly good news, the gospel, is that God in his immense love and incredible power have made a way for new life, for regeneration. This way was through the life, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' death, he took on our old self. He took on our brokenness, our weakness, our hearts of stone, and he destroyed them in his death. In his resurrection, Jesus gives us new life. We are born again and we're changed, we're transformed and made new. Now, I want you to, I want you to understand me today, brothers and sisters, and I want to make this really clear. You cannot save yourself. You can't save your family and you can't save your friends. You cannot make yourself, your family or your friends love God. Nothing you can do can change the eternal trajectory of your life, your children's life or your friend's life. God must act. God must regenerate us. We must be born Again. Now, our response to this reality is not stoic fatalism, or you might know it as hyper-Calvinism. That is, well, it's out of my hands. You know, I can't do anything. It's in the Bible. Uh, God does it. Instead, the right response to this truth is that it actually empowers us. We are being made alive so we are able to turn to him in faith. We can believe in him and we can see that God is so beautiful, so wonderful and he's worthy of all the attention of our lives. If God doesn't act, we're condemned. And some may argue that that's not fair. How can I be condemned for something that I can't even do? I can't control it. How can I, how can I be condemned when it's God who does it? But don't you see? That flows from asking the wrong question. The actual question is why is God so loving that he even saves someone? Why does God care so much about his people and love them that he is willing to send his son to die on the cross so that they could have new life? He's willing to destroy the son he loves so that his people could have new life. The question is like, not, this is so unfair, God, because you haven't made me new life again, you haven't given me new birth. The question is, God, you would actually do this. You would love your people enough to do this. 
And that is the position we have to be in when we hear this truth. God has to destroy evil. It's his nature to do so. If he didn't, the whole cosmos would fall apart. In the same way that light has to destroy darkness, God must destroy evil because they're incompatible. It's Satan's trick to think that God is unfair, when in reality, God is more merciful than we can ever even get our heads around. Just stop and think what it will require you to give away your child, to sacrifice your child. Just imagine what that would require in your mind. It's horrific to even think about. Now you imagine the bond of love between an awesome creator and his son that has existed for all eternity. Imagine the love that had to exist for that bond to be broken. The right response, brothers and sisters, is to fall down in awe and worship and rejoice in the presence of a God who is so good. But what about my son? What about my daughter? What about my mum, my dad, my cousin, my friend? They don't know God. And from what you've just said, preacher, I can't save them. Brothers and sisters, rejoice that you cannot save your family and friends. You're just not up to it. You're not cut out for it. You're not qualified. Instead, turn your eyes to Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and let him do the impossible. Only he can make dead men live again. Plead with him and trust him that his promises are true. He tells us that he will always work for our good. So take him at his word. Ask him. Ask him to bring about the new birth in the life of the one you love. And do it in confidence. Because God is the one who does it. It is his job. This is the awesome comfort for us, brothers and sisters, is that we have been made alive by God. It can't be undone. God will never let us go. Our salvation depends on him. So let us respond in true faith that works itself out in love. There is no room for pride in the Christian life. There is no room for arrogance or for half-baked, limp-wristed Christian response to Jesus. If he has made you alive, he owns you. And how good is it to be a servant of the kindest, greatest king in the universe? Our lives are to be characterised by a humble joy that God has made us alive. There's a strength in our life that can't be broken by our circumstances and there's a love that should flow from our lives because of what he has done for us. Brothers and sisters, let us live our lives in faith. A faith that leads to eternal life. Let us trust in Jesus because he has made it possible to be in right relationship with God. He's made us alive. And let us go out into this world, into your week, into your families with a great confidence because our great God has loved us. And let us pray 
for those that we meet, for those that we work with, for the members of our family who don't know God, for the people you wish would just see who Jesus is. Let's pray. And let's pray with confidence because our God is good and he is powerful. So please join me in prayer now. Father in heaven, it is such a joy to talk with you, Lord. It is such a joy to sit at your feet and to hear your words and to be challenged and encouraged. Lord, when Nicodemus spoke to you, his heart was challenged. And Lord, when we hear these words, our hearts are challenged because you make it clear that it is you who does it. But Lord, let this truth resonate in our hearts. Let it fill us with strength and comfort and joy. And Lord, may we respond in obedience and faith and let love flow out of our lives because you have loved us first. In the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.